we don't get to invest in a lot of sports teams. There's a Liberty Media tracker for the Braves, which haven't helped you if you you want to deal with that. Sports is just, I think, it's is such a weird part of the world, honestly. And- for mature sports teams, I think it's maybe you could justify that kind of comment on the basis of we've had enough success and we're mature enough as a business and a brand that people are going to stick with us even if we stink for a while. And we certainly see with, you know, the Cleveland Browns and some other really horrible sports franchises that there is a fan base that will follow you into the depths of hell, basically, if you stick around for long enough. Welcome to Behind the Idea, where we break down investment ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzman. Today, we're looking at the sport of soccer, football, the World Cup. Ole, 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 blah, blah, blah. By the time you hear this, either France or Croatia will have won the World Cup. Uh, For me, go France. Allez les bleus. Daniel, who do you got? It would be cool to see Croatia win the first time. I mean, France is much better. But, you know, I did Croatia. Why not? Whoa. I assume that means go Croatia. Allez les bleus. Anyway, Daniel, this is a special episode, and not just for its incredible news peg to this World Cup. It's also a special episode because it's the first time that we've had an author request that we cover an idea on the podcast. Alex Kivali, who is a collateralized debt obligation analyst at US Bank and who writes for Seeking Alpha, I think he pinged both of us on LinkedIn. Did you get a LinkedIn message? I just got one on Seeking Alpha's direct messages. You must have got the LinkedIn. Oh, oh. Yeah, I think it's because my t- I'm the managing editor, so I have a little bit more formality with my title. So I, that's probably why he went the LinkedIn route. Thanks for the respect there, Alex. Appreciate it. And you did the right thing by just direct messaging Daniel on Seeking Alpha because, you know, do you, he doesn't even have a LinkedIn. It's just like the silhouette thing and it just has his name. <laughs> <laughs> Full disclosure, not true. Not true. Okay. Okay. This is kind of fun for us. It's the first time it's happened. I hope it happens again. So any authors on Seeking Alpha or any analysts who have ideas that they like us to look at, please get in touch. Uh, You can get in touch with me at my LinkedIn page and you can get in touch with Daniel on his Seeking Alpha page. But don't try LinkedIn because Daniel's not a real professional. But Alex said, and this is a quote from his note, quote, it would be an honor to have it critiqued and explored further by the pair of you. So we're going to do Alex that honor and explore his idea. But before we do that, I want to mention that Seeking Alpha is a website where investors around the world share their ideas and analysis, and neither Daniel nor I have any positions in any company discussed. So the idea that Alex is sharing with us is about Manchester United, the soccer team, hence the World Cup tie-in. So let's quickly just, Daniel, I think you know more about soccer than I do. So could you just give us a quick take on Manchester United and just soccer in general? Manchester United is, I believe, considered the most valuable team in the world, most valuable sports franchise in the world. 
I didn't look at the latest rankings, but I think they're the highest revenue-generating football club, soccer club in the world. They play in the English Premier League, which is the top league in England, obviously, but also they like to think of themselves as the top league in the world. Spain also likes to think of themselves as in the running, and occasionally Germany or Italy get in the mix. And Manchester United is just, it's a, de- it's a powerhouse. The Red Devils, they have just been a historic great team. They had an especially impressive run under Sir Alex Ferguson, a Scottish manager who led the team from, I don't have the dates in front of me, but for over 20 years from the late 80s or early 90s through 2013, I believe was his last season, the 12-13 season. He is, notorious, you know, the sort of sports coach who gets quoted in Harvard Business Studies or in Harvard Business School classes. He's oh, quite a oh. legendary manager. He stepped down in 2013. The club has been in transition since. They're starting to kind of get their success back on track in recent years, which is part of Alex's thesis. Alex Cavalli, not Ferguson. And so, the, yeah, that's the basis. So they're, in the, they're the richest club in the world, more or less. They're in the richest league in the world, for sure, and arguably the best league in the world. They have players across the World Cup, players across, you know, just some of the biggest names in the sport play on Man United or have played on Man United. And there were a handful of soccer teams that are on markets, but I think Manchester United is the only one that trades in the U.S. I think Arsenal does float. I think Celtic Football Club from Glasgow does float. Borussia Dortmund, which there's an odd story about them, but they were on the market. Juventus, which we can talk about. So, yeah, they're a handful, but it's not super frequent. And in the U.S., we don't have a ton of sports franchises on the market. Yeah, it's a bummer that we don't. I think it would be really cool if we could watch the stocks open the day after the Super Bowl or whatever. It would be really... Yeah, I guess, so they're kind of like the Yankees. Basically, my take on Manchester United is that they're like the Yankees of soccer. My really only background with them is that I used to play FIFA against my younger brother video game, and he his favorite player for a long time was Rooney, Wayne Rooney. And I just remember the announcer going, Rooney... Rooney, because you know when they're dribbling, the ball, they have the ball. The like programmed announcer just like says their name over again. Yeah, and then it would be like I don't know, just some other player would be like Rooney, other player, Rooney, Rooney, and then he scores. Yeah, he would always score on me. Anyway, anyway, okay, okay, okay. So I think we we got enough out of what Manchester United is. But that kind of brings us into a transition to Alex Kivoli's idea. So he's covering Manchester United stock, recommending it as a buy. And he has three major angles that he's taking. The first is that the market's not pricing in the upside for international expansion by Manchester United. The second is exceptional executive leadership And the third is the stability of the company's cash flows. So let's dive in to number one, which I think is a really fun angle. I'm not sure how much to buy it or how much to weight it. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. But I'll I'll summarize the basic gist. 
there are two massive growth markets that soccer has yet to tap. And because Manchester United is kind of this Yankees-esque team, leader, one of the best, biggest businesses in soccer, it's in a position to capitalize on this international expansion. Those two markets are China and the United States. And I mean, I was cracking up reading the China angle, not because, I don't know, we were talking before the podcast about this. It's one of those growth ideas that sounds kind of wacky on its face, but then you look at it a little bit more and it's difficult to completely set it aside. I'll just read the China angle. This is quoting from Alex's article. Chinese governing bodies, with the support of avid football fan President Xi Jinping, have outlined aggressive plans to build a 5 trillion renminbi, that's half a trillion pounds, sports industry around football. This football development reform plan aims to increase participation to 50 million, build 70,000 pitches, and train 50,000 coaches by 2020. Chinese companies and wealthy individuals have been encouraged to invest heavily in events, teams, facilities, and agencies while the government has opened its doors to international professional exchanges. Wow. So talk about a tailwind. Like, you and I were talking before, and I kind of made a joke that because China has such a gigantic population, I was joking that China can just flip a switch and then they have a million of whatever kind of profession they want. And I actually was underestimating the power of this hyper-dense, centrally planned economy. Their goal is within two years to have 50 million soccer players. I don't know how many they have now. Build 70,000 pitches and train 50,000 coaches. In two years, adding 50,000 coaches to the United States scene would just be bizarre, but it seems almost normal in China. I, I looked at this a little bit further after Alex's quote because I was just floored by this. And here's a quote from Xi Jinping, the president of China. My biggest hope for Chinese soccer is that the teams become among the world's best, he announced in 2015. That's from New York Times coverage. Has this ever happened in the United States? Is it's not? It seems unusual. I, it's something that I guess we could see the president doing to have national leadership, to have global leadership in a sport. But this is really, I'm sort of convinced that the president of China is a huge soccer fan. The state is communist or however you want to describe the government structure. It seems like they have the capability to sort of brute force their way into creating a giant audience for soccer. What do you think about what do you think, Daniel? I think you don't need a perfectly efficient production of these players to also produce their interests for Man U to benefit if they're a leading franchise and if they're able to forwardly think about China, which they are, and try to market their stars, they should be, in theory, able, you know, Paul Pogba, for example, was one of the most expensive players in the world when Manchester United signed him. He's somebody who maybe is not on that top-tier iconic level, but he's pretty well-known, and that's a pretty major 
intangible asset, as they put it on their balance sheet, to have him on their team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was trying to think of... So, Alex Kivali's point here is that this is an overlooked aspect of the story. I was trying to figure out what kind of tailwind, growth tailwind, you might like ascribe to this. And I was trying to just do some kind of back of the envelope math on it. And what we have here that let's say that a media deal is somewhere in the like hundred million dollars for China or something like that. I just get that maybe this is like a China could be like a 1% bottom line growth tailwind to whatever else. It feels like it's big, but I'm not sure. That would be huge, right? If the market's missing about a percentage point, I'm just throwing that out there. But like, what do you, how do you, how would you go about trying to quantify a tailwind like this? I think you could do it. I'll I'll give a way you could do it, but I do think it's one of those cases where you're going to get a little bit too caught out in your efforts. You could, you could in theory, try to figure out what what is the base value for their endorsements? Why does Chevrolet sponsor them for the amount they do? Like try to come up with some fundamental predictors of their various revenue streams. They're probably not going to get much more. China won't make a di- big difference in their attendance. Probably doesn't make a big difference in their domestic TV rights deals. You can probably map out what does the English Premier League's deals in what do the deals in the US or China look like and how might they grow and what cut does man you take but you could like you could break out each of these different lines you could even I was thinking as you were talking like you could even speculate what if man you eventually gets a Chinese player who's good enough to be on their bench and then all of a sudden that's huge merchandising opportunities if they if they sign that player and then if they actually have a legitimate star from China then all of a sudden, like, wow, that they signed that, and that's going to be somebody who's more valuable than just their playing potential because they're going to be recognized as a hero at home. And so that there's those sorts of optionalities built into the growth or whatever. But I think it's, I think we probably can't. We probably can't, right? Yeah, that was a long way to say we can't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, but you know, maybe. Maybe then when we're looking at the the you know the cash flow multiple, which is in the 30s, or the PE multiple, which is maybe in the 40s or 60s, we can knock that down. We can knock the multiple down a little bit based on some expected additional earnings from it. Sure. Um, so maybe that's one way to look at it. But okay, I don't want to get too in the weeds there because I think we're probably over our head in terms of trying to figure out the China effect on the stock price. But I think maybe that's an important point just to bring home that you can have a qualitative tailwind that you've identified correctly and maybe even the market has not priced accurately, but it's really hard to know how much of that to throw into your valuation. And uh, I think that's something that's the case here. You know, we it's easy to see some kind of growth opportunity, but you don't necessarily know how to price it. Okay, so... Let's get into the U.S. real quick. Basically, he's saying that there are some North American opportunities that are unexplored for Manchester United. 
it seems like the English Premier League is generating some additional interest that NBC has inked a pretty big deal for Premier League coverage. Let's not get too into whether soccer can ever really take off in America. I think it can and has, but what do you think about just like the general idea of the U.S. as an additional undervalued growth market for Man U? One of my favorite podcasts is the Men and Blazers podcast, and they have the line, soccer, the sport of the future, and it has been since 1972. And I think there's always the hope that America is going to become this boom town. I don't know. I think it's it seems pretty popular at this point. It, it gets regular coverage. I'm not in the U.S. all the time, but it has regular coverage on the front page of ESPN. The NBC deal is quite big and it seems like they're doing quite a good job with that the world cup what was like was there buzz around the world cup this year i mean was it like did you feel i know dc maybe is more cosmopolitan than a lot of cities but did it feel like people were just interested in what was going on oh yeah all my wife's colleagues are into the world cup they watch it in the conference room dc united is actually fairly popular here as a sports team I was thinking back like a decade ago or to the World Cup 12 years ago. I think we were still having explainers posted on Slate.com about how it's okay for a match to end in a tie and explaining some of the things about soccer, like why they have the kids. I actually didn't read this, so there's I don't know the answer, but it seems like something everyone knows now is why the kids escort the players out onto the field. Right. But I think we're in a different world now. And I was just like, I just looked up a few things. There are 5 million registered players in the United States. And obviously that's up from about zero in the 60s. So it has taken off to some degree. But I don't know about the trajectory. I do feel, though, that it's no longer, even over the past 12 years, there's definitely, even without the U.S. in this World Cup, I feel like it's still something that, at least, yeah, in coastal elite cosmopolitan sections in the United States is cared about, watched on TV, and discussed. But yeah, I'm in a Twitter bubble, so who knows what the reality is. The 12 years ago World Cup, of course, was where France was last in the finals and where the guy headbutted the other guy. Zinedine Zidane. Yeah. Zinedine Zidane, my uh, favorite all-time player. He won the he either won the golden boot or the Ballon d'Or in that World Cup despite leaving the final game with a red card and that was his final moment of his career was headbutting that Italian player commemorating yeah. in a statue in Paris Zidane my guy Anyway, that's we're well off. We're well off. Let's get back to Manu. I think the U.S. Yeah, I, I sort of. I, I'm going to tease out. I think what you were getting at. I think the U.S. will continue to grow, maybe more than in a most mature market like England or or France or wherever else. I think you could model five to ten percent growth, but I just don't think that there's. I don't think there are people out there who totally don't know what's going on with soccer and also will be interested enough to be a regular viewer, a potential spender or whatever. Like, I think it'll, it will grow. Uh, it could, you know, you never know what happens with football, for example, and the concussion issues or any. Well, here's another thing. 
Here's another thing for you on this. I think it goes to Manchester United's positioning. I see Manchester United as much more capable of positioning effectively in China than in the United States. I feel like if MLS takes off in the United States, I kind of I feel like they're closer to the ceiling. The people who know about and care about and are fans of Manchester United in the United States is probably well closer to saturated than in China. That's because I don't know anything about China, but I feel like those guys who like soccer and girls who like soccer in the United States uh, are already out there. But maybe, but who knows? We can model some kind of amount of growth. I guess maybe that's where we, there's some range where there's additional room. There's definitely headroom for soccer to be more like it is in Europe, in the US. So the next part of his thesis then is the executive leadership, which we can kind of run through quickly since neither of us are super fluent on this but i want to just say that i'm way less than fluent on this and don't know hardly anything about it so yeah go ahead go ahead (laughs) unnecessary disclosure so they uh i mentioned alex ferguson stepped down they then hired a couple different managers of you know relatively good reputation but one had never managed on that big a stage and he struggled and ultimately did not succeed. Then another came in who had been on that biggest stage, but toward the end of his career, didn't have a ton of success. And as Alex mentioned, they kind of tailed off. And it's funny because you can look on their financials and you can kind of see the revenue hits that they took from not earning the same prize revenue and the same sort of gate revenue. They now have Jose Mourinho as their manager. He is a controversial manager, but also one of the best managers in the world and has done a decent job with the club. They won a European, the Europa League they won year before last. They made it into the Champions League again this year. They took second in the Premier League last year behind their rival Manchester City, which is interesting. But like they're back on track, essentially. He's criticized because he's not super entertaining in the way he has his team play, but they're winning quite a lot. They're back sort of in a groove. Their executive leadership is led by Ed Woodward, who it's funny because Alex shares Woodward's CV in here somewhere. And, you know, he's a former J.P. Morgan guy. He's a finance guy who's in charge. And I think Alex even quotes them as, as saying that, Playing performance has become of little meaningful impact to the commercial side of the business, according to Woodward, which is the reason sports are somewhat different from going to a movie is that you have not only entertainment, but you have an attachment to the team. And when you say stuff like that, that really pisses people off that you do, it's essentially saying we, we don't even care about our uh, about winning because we're just going to be raking in the dough regardless. So that's um, but he's, you know. They're profitable. They're generating free cash flow. They're doing. They seem to be reasonably well run. They had a, like they've had some hiccups over the years. They failed to sell a player to Real Madrid, I think, because of a bad fax machine on the deadline. So like they have some quirky things. But so that's the leadership. It seems in good hands on the business end. It seems in good hands on the soccer end. They have have a lot of strong players. Whether or not they are going to be a threat to win the Premier League next year, they've got, you know, one of the best goalies in the world. Paul Pogba is considered one of the best midfielders. 
They have some some promising young talent. They have some like they've got a you know even though Jose Mourinho would always want better players, and even though like you could always point to weak spots, they're a pretty darn good team. And so yeah, so that's sort of the leadership. The leadership and the players are kind of strong, and that bodes well for how they. Um, We'll continue to support the rest of the business and thus the the cash and everything else. Got it. Well, I think there is something to... Okay, first of all, the point from... What was Woodward from J.P. Morgan? that his name? Yeah, that... I think there's some truth to that. You know, we we were talking before the podcast that the demand curve is probably pretty flat and there's it's probably kind of inelastic the demand for sports-related content for a lot of reasons. One is that you an individual can only have one sports team. It's so tied into your identity as a consumer. You know, I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. I'm not going to switch that no matter what happens, basically. And that includes the Packers being terrible for a really long time because it's tied to, like, where I'm from. It's tied to my family. It's tied to all these things about my sense of self. For mature sports teams, I think it's maybe you could justify that kind of comment on the basis of, We've had enough success and we're mature enough as a business and a brand that people are going to stick with us even if we stink for a while. And we certainly see with, you know, the Cleveland Browns and some other really horrible sports franchises that there is a fan base that will follow you into the depths of hell, basically, if you stick around for long enough. And so and and so to me it's more of like an an option payout structure where if you reach a certain point, like you're not going to, there's only a certain amount that you're going to backslide. So you have kind of a base of revenue generation and stability. And then from that, there's optionality from being exceptional. So you, if you achieve some level of success by being a good organization, then you're going to capture some additional value. That's kind of optionality upside. I think so there's I I would just add two two nuances to that for for Manchester United which the international soccer leagues you have the potential to be relegated and drop to level which is kind of a cool not not great for investors who want stability but is a cool system of if you really stink you can't tank if you tank you're thrown out of the league and drop to the lower level but for Manchester United, if that were to become a possibility, like we're really in talking in trouble because it's just the Premier League is considered quite competitive, but it's still basically five or six teams that are at the top. It used to be only four, but now it's expanded as a couple teams have gotten better. And if they ever finish out of the top six, it's sort of weird. And I, I was trying to just pull up. They, they finished seventh in... 2014 and that was in the first year after Alex Ferguson stepped down and that's like just kind of crazy uh, a crazy so they do they kind of sell a put they're kind of have sold a put if they get bad enough then they can be put they can lose they take a quantum leap downwards basically in terms of the value of the and that am I right that relegation kind of reduces your exposure? It probably has all sorts of business impacts. Even beyond the like 
secondary oh. level of exposure, the TV deals you get, you're just dropped out of like winning. They call the the championship game in the second league, which is the English championship. They call the biggest, the most expensive game or the richest reward in sports because if you win that, you qualify for the Premier League deal, and all of a sudden, you your revenue just boom goes much higher. And so, yeah, you have that immediate top line impact, and then brand damage and everything else. You lose players, right? And we see that in the there's a four billion dollar deal fell through based on the idea of introducing promotion and relegation to I think it's in here Alex's article the Chinese soccer league so clearly that promotion relegation structure has a huge impact in terms of the business all right so final item stability of cash flows I can see it let's just so let's talk about it just in terms of what Alex brings up here the the most standout thing to me is that you know kind of like in the u.s we have yankee stadium or we have lambeau field or we have these other stadia that are sold out for basically a generation or longer in advance it sounds like there's a similar thing here going on with the ticket sales at manchester united stadium and just the brand overall is team has been around for so long that there does seem to be a fairly considerable stability of cash flows argument. If we're thinking of this in terms of this being the Yankees of soccer, people are going to be wearing Yankees hats for another hundred years, right? And I think Manchester United, you can make a similar argument that people are going to want to watch them on TV. The Warren Buffett, hundred years, will this company be around in a hundred years? argument. I think that applies here. This feels like one of those in terms of just being a, effectively a perpetuity. What do you think? I think it's interesting because this is where I just, we don't get to invest in a lot of sports teams. There's there's a Liberty Media of tracker for the Braves, which haven't helped you if you, you want to deal with that. There is the Madison, <laughs> Madison Square Garden. Garden. Management issues there, apparently, from what I hear. Serious management issues. So I think that's it in the U.S. And so it's just funny because we do think of sports. Sports is just, I think, is 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 such a weird part of the world, honestly. And this comes as somebody who was an was a huge sports fan as a kid, an athlete, and as a kid and in college, and somebody who's still. The first thing I read in the newspaper is often. The sports page, I still check ESPN. It's basically the first thing I look at every day. It's still sort of a force of habit for me. but it, And so it's just interesting to think of it as an investment because there is just so so much sort of tied into it in terms of you play the game to win, but actually I don't, if I'm an investor, do I care about winning or do I care about making money? And then what does that mean for how you run your business? And when do those those usually overlap, but when do they not? And all these sorts of things. And so I think it's, I think your point, or Alex's point about this cash flows, yeah, I think they're pretty stable. The one question I would have is, we talked about this with sort of the, the media business in general. It, everybody's cutting the cord and every, brands seem less important and people's viewing patterns are going more March, like they're getting separated out and ratings are down. And, you know, one of our first podcasts became timely because 
Papa John's guy stepped down and we that was over the NFL ratings and like all this stuff is happening what does that mean for what is there a chance that we're at peak football or soccer is there a chance that it will decline is there a chance that people's tastes will change I think I think you would be making an ahistoric bet to say that it is but that's the only thing I would that would be the only reason I would argue that there's real instability I think the English Premier League is probably going to be fine. I think, you know, like, silly, not silly things, but more topical things like Brexit. I'm sure if that has an impact, <laughs> they'll figure it out. Are, do, are they restricting player flows across the borders? They, they did historically. And then they opened that up, and that's considered to be... Uh, I forget what the name of the... I think it was a court ruling in the 90s that said, like, you can't place restrictions on how many foreign players there are on the team or EU foreign players. And so it opened up the EU to... Oh. The ruling I'm referring to is the Bosman ruling, which came in the mid-90s and opened the door to more player movement in European soccer, as well as the end of restrictions in European leagues on the number of foreign EU players they could field at any given time. Back to the show. So it is legit... There is some legitimacy to the threat. If it was that way before, it could potentially come back yeah uh, i mean they even even just in this world cup they even though the england team did well there's this argument that the england players don't get enough chances in to play because they're crowded out by all these awesome i mean i just listed all the manchester united players and not one of them that i referred to was an englishman or 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 anybody from the british isles and so yeah in theory but normally I, pretty gnarly. I'm not actually saying that that's a threat. I don't think that that's a major issue to worry about. Are you a Brexiter, Daniel? <laughs> no, 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 sir. I, okay. big Brexit fans. Uh, bre- Full disclosure. Breakfast fan, not Brexit. Breakfast, yeah. Okay. But um, so yeah, I don't know. It just seems like, from that perspective, like, can you imagine? I, I know the Green Bay Packers famously are fan owned. Are you a, are you an owner of the Packers? I am not. I have to reluctantly confess that I don't own any shares in the Green Bay Packers. The DCF just doesn't quite work out. <laughs> that, right? Like you could like think about the mod, the sensitivity analysis you would have to do there. What if Aaron Rodgers decides that he's going to go be a monk or what if um you know like what if the what if the Detroit Lions suddenly become a Titan and own that division? I, it won't happen. But like all these these uh, these funny things about sports that you have to sort of factor in. But then ultimately, how much does that affect their bottom line? Soccer is a little bit more ironically capitalistic than the U.S. sports leagues because I think of relegation, also no salary caps and. I mean, it's a little, it's not quite fair to say it that way, but I think it's a pretty, to bet against the stability of the cash flows, you either need to fundamentally think that something is going to cause Manchester United to be a failed franchise worse than, I don't know, the worse than average soccer. soccer. Yeah. 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 The Lakers were bad for the last five years and they're still fine. So, yeah. You'd have to count on that, or you'd have to say that soccer is going to. There's some something will seriously cramp the growth of soccer as a as an entertainment product, which is not a bet I would take. Right. Yeah. 
I think definitely the the force of probability and momentum and the trend is well on the side of the business model here. And especially on the side of teams that are at the top of the pile, like Manchester United. We were talking before the podcast, you can only there can only be a couple of top teams. And then the world population just continues to grow. So you just get a if you are one of those eternally great teams, you just get a share of that attention and love and brand loyalty in perpetuity and it grows as more people come on online as humans, you know, as as sports fans as we get into the sport. Okay, so I buy it basically. I think this is a stable business with a serious moat. And with that in mind, how should we think about the valuation, Daniel? And how should we think about the financial statements? I told you before we started recording that this was one of the first times that I opened up an annual report. And usually at a glance, I can convince myself that I have a basic grasp of what's going on. But the accounting treatment of so many different things in Manchester United, like the players are intangible assets, I think we were saying. I was stricken by the relatively narrow gross margins on a business that seems to have a lot of brand equity and potentially pricing power. And the operating margins also seem pretty thin to me. So there's something going on with the accounting here that, and then on top of all that, you know, it's a sports franchise. So there's some sort of premium associated with that. So let what do you think about the fundamentals and how do you start going about valuing something like a Manchester United? We had Paul, Paul Brady on last week to talk uh, the, the cruise lines at Royal Caribbean. And I think, and at some point he was like, how do you value those luxury, those luxury clients that Royal Caribbean has just acquired? And I don't think we said it and it didn't like when we then brought on William Mack from Spring Mill Research, it didn't come up. I didn't bring it up as a direct question per se, but ultimately that's what the money is for. You value them based on how much money. And so I think we should be, I guess when you're coming into a new industry, you don't want to abstract it too much. You don't want to get into too much of the like weeds of... You need to understand where the revenue is coming from and why the margins are the way they are. And then I would just sort of give our qualitative takes that the cash flow seems pretty stable. I think what you just brought up is a good one, which is that, yeah, the cash is or the revenue streams seem pretty stable. But at the same time, they're expensive. It's competitive. You're always you do see wage inflation in sports and and soccer has this extra thing where you're there are transfer fees so you don't trade for players normally there was actually a trade executed this year but it's not usually a trade it's usually you buy the rights to their contract which sometimes there's a set fee that you can pay to to do that but you have to kind of dig to get you have to pay quite a lot of money so paul pogba was i think over a hundred thousand dollars just to get the rights to have him play for you and pay him whatever his salary is. And so, correction, they had to pay over $100 million. Back to the show. 
you need to know that, and that's where like the so the cash flow statement is kind of funny because capex in its traditional sense, property and equipment is quite small, but then you look at spending on intangible assets, and that I believe is the money spent acquiring the players, and then there's also disposal of the tangible assets, which is when you sell them on to another club, which Manchester United doesn't do as much of. They're more of a spender, but you know there are times where they a player is no longer fit or wasn't a good fit in the first place or whatever else. And so, yeah, I think you just need to get a sense of what's going on and then try to understand those margins. And that would be not having looked as closely as you at the margins. I would just guess that it's a very competitive environment despite the stability of the revenue and they have to spend quite a bit on player salaries on improving their facilities on coach salaries jose Mourinho is not a cheap manager to have and so forth and so i guess that's so i wouldn't i don't know did did that answer your question as far as how i would sort of take the financial statements and deal with them yeah i guess yeah, you're making sense to me. It's just more capital intensive than I thought. You have, but maybe there's also stability and also the pricing power isn't fully realized. You could probably gouge fans for more than you're gouging them for now. Maybe there's optionality in stadium expansions and some other things that make this, certainly the market prices this like it's a more attractive business than it looks on just a margin basis. I'll tell you my thought process where I was anchored, and I'm not saying this is right or wrong. It's obviously more wrong than right, but I just looked up Coke because I was like, what else is another just brand that is, you know, just an A plus brand, globally known, has tons of loyalty, has a sort of seemingly captive consumer base, and their gross margins are 60%. I guess that's because it comes back to the costs, right? You know, Coke is just syrup. Uh, Manchester United is not just syrup. It's players and a stadium and an experience and all the competition among the different teams and all of that. So I'm getting that. That eats into the margin substantially. Ferrari maybe would be another one that I just looked at. It's 50% gross margins. I find it interesting anyway that basically Manchester United is closer to Costco on gross margins than it is to Coke at 20%. Costco is zero. Coke is 60%. It's just in a weird spot. 20% does not seem like a fat gross margin to me. I just, so I get it. I get that there's a lot of capital intensity here. There's a lot of costs of goods sold. I think your point about the bargaining power of suppliers and the switching costs being high is another thing to look at. I still don't have my head around the business model from that perspective, I guess. One thing, just looking at the at the statements, that is a big line, and that is also just kind of a funny thing. And, and this is what I think is, so so I'll, I'll expand, expand on this a second, but amortization is a big line. And what amortization is, is basically acknowledging that if I paid $100,000 for, or a million dollars for the rights to own Paul Pogba's contract, the relative value of that may be declining over time, unless I can then decide that when he turns 30 that I want to sell him to Real Madrid or Juventus or whatever else. 
And so that's kind of a big, I don't know, I mean, you've got to account for it because ultimately that money is going to go out the door through your CapEx, but that's kind of a quirk there that that's such a, I mean, that's a 124,000 million pounds last year, uh, 2017. I'm just looking at the last annual report versus 581 million pounds in revenue. That's that's a big chunk. So I think that's a quirk. And I think it's what I was just going to geek out about it for a second is that's sports. I think, you know, we're in an age of money ball and it's getting to soccer too. better analysis of data. And the owners of Liverpool, for example, are the same owners of the Boston Red Sox. And they sort of brought that model over and or the, that sort of a mindset. And sports is you can kind of deconstruct it and analyze and get the data and everything else. But it's also cool because there's different business models. You can have Manchester United isn't going to switch their model, but they are the behemoth. They're going to try to grow their revenue. They're going to try to win whatever they say. They're going to try to win. They're going to try to continue to acquire players. Maybe they'll develop some, but they're sort of more of a end-of-the-line team, whereas you have teams like Ajax in uh, in the Netherlands or you have teams like Borussia Dortmund or Southampton in the Premier League that are better known for developing players or better known for buying players earlier in their career and then improving them so that they can then sell them on. There's just kind of this funny, I mean, funny and kind of sad because I think we then abstract it and just think of them as intangible assets sometimes and not people. But like there's this whole process of how you manage your team and how you manage your players and what sort of coaches you attract and what you can expect from your revenues ultimately i think it's a dependent on what your manchester united because of their i don't know if you would call it first mover or whatever else but they're going to rake in cash so they can then afford to spend and be that end of the line thing whereas Borussia dortmund might not be able to even though they're quite good or southampton is not able to etc and so it's just kind of a funny uh, approach and, and i think there's more diversity to business models in soccer than you can have in the u.s leagues because there is no relegation and there's not and the the revenue sharing is much better you're required to spend a certain amount on your players in most leagues i think and so there's that sort of give and take vertical integration thanks to relegation okay i you said you were going to geek out that was a full geek out uh for sure so congratulations on you delivered on your promise to fully geek out. Uh, okay, so I'm gonna stick, I think I'm gonna still go with some valuation comments here. First of all, um, just a couple notes. Alex did a lot of work and I think there's just an example here. Sometimes you get like six layers deep in the spreadsheet and the valuation story actually starts to get a little bit harder to follow the more variables you address you know he has like 12 comparable companies here which is good and then that's all compelling but the i know for me personally the more cells in a spreadsheet that i start to use the more fragile i feel like my modeling is getting this is just a personal bias but i strongly gravitate towards trying to find the right multiple and going with that after i've sort of convinced myself that that's what you do. I also noticed here, and I don't want to blow Alex up because I think he did really great work and the overall valuation case seems fine to me. I think he makes a defensible case that 
you know, there's 20, 25% upside in the stock. I did notice that his discount rate was in the three to 4% range, which seemed a little bit low to me, even if you believe really strongly in the stability of the business overall. And just my basic justification for that is that, you know, the high yield bonds in the US are yielding something like five and a half, five point six percent 5.6%. So being higher up in the capital structure on maybe more risky projects. Also just that the US treasury is at about 2.8 for the 10 year, something like that. It just seemed a little bit low. I think there's something, we need to talk to Professor Demotoran about using discount rates in this environment and sort of how he approaches that. But I thought that, you know, it just shows that you know, I would probably put a discount rate of maybe 8% on Berkshire Hathaway's cash flows or something like that. And that's one of the least risky businesses I can think of. So that's just something I noticed here. But getting away from that, so Alex was way more sophisticated here. And he probably, well, we should invite him on to have him talk about his model and justify it for us. But I don't understand the business super well, but I noticed a couple things. One is that because I think attention is paid to these businesses according to their top line and their reach, and you can value brands according to how far they extend in terms of who knows about them and who's loyal, I think that a price to sales multiple is probably a fair approach here. And that's just sort of a mainstream benchmark that a lot of people seem to be using. The Forbes list tends, I just backed out their multiples and they seem to value the Cowboys at about six and a half times sales, the Patriot at six and a half times sales. Another Forbes article, or no, a Time Magazine article used four times sales as a benchmark, and Alex's benchmark for the sales multiple is, or his EV sales median is 1.8, but that includes some really low, uh, less powerful teams. But the third quartile is 5.5. So I just said, like, let's put a four, 4x sales on this. And that's where the company is valued today. That seems fairly valued. The other reason I think that this is a justified approach is because we know that there's some ego aspect to owning a sports team there's some just gut feel about it there's speculative value to owning it just because another billionaire may come along and want to buy it we saw steve ballmer buy the clippers for 15 times sales and i don't think that's indefensible ballmer's not an idiot he's maybe too rich for his own good but turn um, around turn around play <laughs> it's a turnaround <laughs> yeah i maybe well you know if he gets the financials of it anyway so to me i just have a gut check here it seems relatively fairly valued maybe a little undervalued if you believe some of alex's growth stories so i'm more or less tracking to his valuation even if the mechanics i wasn't so sure about what do you think daniel yeah, I, I hear your, what you're saying. I, I still gravitate towards the sort of earnings and cash flow metrics on which basis it's, I think, doing the quick back of the envelope using a, they they report their filings in pounds, so you have to convert to dollars to get to the share price. You know, they're trading for 30 to 35 times free cash flow, if we got the math right. 2017 free cash flow, I haven't updated for trailing 12 months, so... 
yeah, I think it's it seems it seems fairly valued to me. And to Alex's credit, he wrote the runway is not quite over. He was compared. He actually wrote up the company back in 2015, I think. Which wow, that should be a nice 30 percent in the past year. Let's look at that. Let's give him a little respect if he so. 2015 it traded between say 15 ish and 18 ish so he's well above water huh yeah it looks like it was fairly range bound for a while and then kind of in the jose Mourinho era i guess it's <laughs> i guess and that's where the funny like it just becomes yeah he's up 29 percent on his call nice job alex you have to sort of separate out like the sports drama from the from that valuation. I mean, anybody who, you know, this week, anybody who was lucky enough to be owning Juventus shares is up 30% or so because they decided to sign Cristiano Ronaldo. And so... Yeah, go go Juventus, I guess. I have no idea. I When I first read that news item, I thought that it was... I just misread it. I thought it was like... Italian GDP growth expected to expand by 2% on Ronaldo joining Juventus. I was like, dang, soccer is a massive sport. And Ronaldo, wow, it's just like brings 1% GDP growth where whatever country he goes to. Their credit rating goes up like three notches. <laughs> anyway, I, um, yeah, I, well, so, so, okay, so you think fairly valued, and you think Alex is kind of in the fairly valued to still some room to run call here. Yeah, I mean, what did he, his price target was something in the 24 range, I think? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I would say, I would, I don't rate things as a hold per se, but if you owned Manchester United right now, and it, it would, You'd have to have a really compelling other opportunity to to switch to, I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I'm not looking in. I'm not looking at it as an investment, but I was. I was persuaded that he knows the story, and I we're in this environment still where I feel like the value approach is tough. I mean, on a on a pure sort of free cash flow multiple basis 30 times, you have to expect this to be around the stability of a treasury slightly less than that, or that there are some kind of growth prospects. And I guess we get both of those things here. You know, it. I'm not gonna talk myself into it, but I'm coming around to liking this work a whole lot, especially in the context of we get a lot of articles at Seeking Alpha where someone is a fan of the product and therefore is interested in the investment story. And I think that we get a nice transcendence of that here. And this is a serious analysis that is not necessary. I mean, I would guess that Alex Kivoli is a soccer fan based on reading it, but I think that he's done a sober and realistic analysis here. Yeah, I, I was going to tease about the sort of Peter Lynch style, but I think this is actually a good application of that where you don't just say, oh, Man United is popular and they're back in the top of the Premier League and they're going to rake in dough or whatever. Like, it was clearly a lot of research and a lot of 
and relatively measured analysis overall. So, uh, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, it was, it was good stuff. Good. Yeah. We should see if we can get him on and we should get some axes on the on Man U stock because I, I want to talk about the financial statements in more detail and get my head around it. I'm just going to confess, listeners, I didn't I just didn't get there. But I love the story and Rooney, Rooney. Mike, do you know who the next big player is for DC United? It's Rooney. Yeah, it's Rooney, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna invest in DC United stock. <laughs> okay, I think we got this one, Daniel. What do you think? I think that's good. Yeah, not a Manchester. Allez les Bleus. Allez les Bleus. Yeah. Good. Good luck to the Bleu in that Croatia England game. Was pretty pretty sweet. Did you watch that? No, I haven't seen... Dude, Senegal is my team, and they lost uh, way long time ago. My wife's team is Germany. They lost. And I also have a terrible... We'll have to do a cable company. It's, my cable package is so bad, I didn't get like any of the games. They Senegal had a pretty good game in there. They had a, they had a nice little run. I mean... Yeah, no, no. It was cool. And they're young, so they could be really strong next year, next time. Anyway. Alele Lyon de la Taranga. <laughs> The yeah. yeah, that means lions of hospitality. <laughs> what a good, what a good team name. I know it's like fierce, but also generous. I like that. Okay, I think we gotta go. All right, good talk. <laughs> All right, bye, 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 Daniel. Daniel. bye Mike. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea, and to Alex for pitching his idea to us on Behind the Idea. As always, if you have any favorite ideas you want reviewed, email us at daniel at seekingalpha.com or mtaylor at seekingalpha.com. LinkedIn or Seeking Alpha direct messages are also open. You can also tweet us at, at danielseekinga or at mbrooksTaylor. We are always open to feedback. I hope you noticed that Mike's sound was way better this week, and I think we have a good idea how to level it out next time out. But next week is a special interview edition as Mike's away on vacation. So we're going to be featuring at least two Seeking Alpha authors to talk about the same stock. We hope you join us then. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening and see you next time on Behind the Idea.